I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church this morning. We're glad you've chosen to worship with us again. We just want to thank you for being here. The past several weeks, we've been examining the book of Daniel. And as we've been doing that, we've seen some incredible visions, some incredible adventures of God's people held captive in a foreign land. And this captivity, this exile, was a form of punishment for their own rebellion, their own idolatry, and their own injustice. As we've looked at the book of Daniel, we've specifically focused on one man quite a bit. Of course, his name is Daniel, along with three of his friends named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For these four men, this has been a long exile, one filled with twists and turns. One minute, Daniel and his friends are ascending to positions of power and influence, and the next minute, facing certain death because of their faith in God. We've read about three different kings so far in the story, coming and going, each with their own unique role to play. But through it all, all the ups and all the downs, all the twists and turns, king after king after king, Daniel and his friends have remained faithful. They've remained loyal to God, even though they are far away from home, and even though they're suffering. And even more clearly in this book, Not only have Daniel and his three friends remained faithful to God, but God has remained faithful to them as well. Today we're going to look at one of the biggest themes throughout the book of Daniel again, one that we've talked about already, and that theme is suffering. Now if you feel like that's all we've been talking about lately, you're right, because the second half of Daniel, that's pretty much All that it talks about. It talks about the suffering that Daniel is going through in that very moment. But it also talks a bunch about future suffering that God's people will encounter. But as we look at these last three chapters of Daniel today, chapters 10 through 12, I pray that we'll not just learn something more about suffering for the gospel and suffering and being faithful to God through it. But my prayer is that we'll have a good summary to the entire book of Daniel. So with that, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10. If you are using one of our chair Bibles, this will be located on page 634. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave this morning. You'll also notice an outline in your bulletin that you got when you walked in the door. If you'd like to follow along in that outline, feel free to. But you have to promise that you won't try to guess all the blanks in advance. And you have to promise that you won't tune out when all the blanks are filled. The reason I warn you of that is because that's what I do when I have those outlines. So try and avoid that temptation. So you've got your Bibles open. You've got your outline. Let's pray together, and then we'll get started in Daniel 10. Father, thank you for the book of Daniel. Thank you for all the stories, all the visions, all the things that occurred in history that that just show so incredibly how powerful and how glorious and how faithful and how loving you are to your people. Father, I pray as we wrap up the book of Daniel that we can come away with more confidence and more hope in who you are and who it is that we trust in and that you are a God who is truly able to save us. God, thank you for your son Jesus, the privilege that we have to Come together under his banner on a Sunday morning and take communion and sing songs and pray and the privilege that we have of reading your word. 
God, I pray that we wouldn't take those things for granted. God, thank you again for this morning and this time. I pray that we would leave here more eager to know you and more eager to glorify you in every single phase of our lives. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Starting out in Daniel chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So we start out with Daniel seeing a vision. Again, that's nothing new so far in this book. But this time, the vision occurs during the reign of King Cyrus. If you're keeping count, that's king number four that Daniel has seen. He has seen some things during his exile in Babylon. But Daniel specifically mentions that this vision occurs while he's fasting and mourning. Now, an important question to ask is this. Why is he fasting? Why is he mourning? What's he so unhappy about? I mean, think about it. Last week, Daniel got great news. He got news from the book of Jeremiah that the exile was coming to an end. The Jews were about to be delivered by God. This is wonderful news. He must have been elated when he read those words. Shouldn't he be happy? What's he mourning about? Well, the exile was ending. Nothing's changed there. Jeremiah was right. The problem, of course is the timing. Look at Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, another book that talks about the Jews returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. Ezra 1, 1 through 3, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Okay, exiles ending again. Nothing's changed there, but the problem is the timing. In Daniel 10, the vision occurs during the third year of King Cyrus. But in Ezra chapter 1, the exile is happening in the first year of King Cyrus. So as we look at the timing, we get a clue into maybe why Daniel is mourning and fasting and grieving. Perhaps the reason he's mourning is that while many of the Jews had already begun heading home, and as great and as celebratory as that is, Daniel's still there. He's still there. And on top of that, Daniel's now roughly 90 years old. This has been a long time that he's been stuck away from his home, and maybe he's starting to realize that even though the exile is over, even though other people are getting to return home, just like Jeremiah said they would, 
Daniel's realizing that he may not be around long enough to go home. He may not get to see Jerusalem after all. After all this time and all this pain and all this suffering. The vision itself that Daniel has takes up almost all of chapters 10 through 12. The vision is long. At times the vision is confusing. But then at other times the vision is miraculously clear and miraculously detailed. Much of the vision talks about the coming conflict between Persia and Greece, two great empires. It includes details of specific events. It talks about political and military strategies. More time is dedicated to Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, who we've talked about already. If you're looking for a way to remember Antiochus Epiphanes, just remember Epiphanes is the epitome of wicked kings. Yeah, what do you think? I came up with that. God's people will be repeatedly subjected to persecution. At least I think I came up with that. Somebody else might have said it, but yeah. God's people will be repeatedly subjected to persecution. Guys like Antiochus Epiphanes will continue to rule. And God's people more than once will be one final step, it seems, away from utter and complete annihilation. It's a terrible pattern. Guys like these wicked kings that we've read so far continue to rise up and continue to make God's people suffer. That is a terrible pattern to find yourself in. But it's a pattern that we've already seen elements of in this book of Daniel. And in chapters 10 through 12, Daniel learns that unfortunately, these patterns of wicked kings arising and persecuting God's people, that pattern's not going to change. That pattern is going to continue long after Daniel is gone. If you look in your bulletin outline, you'll see some blanks talking about the pattern of wickedness. The first blank, we see a clue in chapter 11, verse 27, the first step of this terrible pattern. Verse 27, and as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. This pattern of wicked kings always starts with those two words, the end. A time of the end is coming. At this time of the end, when the end of these things come, it's never a good start when you have a vision that starts with the end. That's a bad start to a bad pattern. The next step in your outline is chapter 11 Verses 21 through 23. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. And he shall become strong with a small people. So after the time of the end, a wicked king arises. A wicked king will arise and gain power and gain influence. That's step two of this frightening pattern. Step three is seen in chapter 11, verse 30. We read there, For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. 
So at the time of the end, a wicked king arises, and then a wicked king attacks God's people. That verse specifically says that the king will attack the holy covenant, is the phrase used for God's people. Things are getting pretty bad, but we still have two more steps to go with this terrible pattern. The first is seen in chapter 11, verse 31. The fourth step, rather. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. When these wicked kings arise, they have a habit of after attacking God's people, forcing them to worship idols. They force them to worship idols. That's pretty bad. And then we turn to chapter 12, verse 7. The final step of this pattern that just seems to be happening over and over and over. And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. That verse says that God's people will be shattered. The final blank, the final step of the pattern is that after the time of the end comes and the wicked king arises and he attacks God's people and forces them to worship idols, the fifth step is that God's people will suffer under these wicked kings. God's people will suffer. Now, as you read the vision and hear about this pattern, you can't help but feel bad. For someone like Daniel, this poor 90-year-old man has been suffering for all this time, decade upon decade upon decade, king after king after king. For someone like Daniel, looking at probably the final days of his life, this has to be a pretty sobering message. After all, where's the hope in a message like that? Where's the encouragement in hearing that God's people are going to suffer again the same way you've suffered, Daniel? Long after you're gone, wicked kings are going to do the same thing to them that they did to you. Where is the hope in a message like that? Well, believe it or not, Daniel does have reason to hope even after realizing that he won't get to return home. Daniel does have reason to hope, even after hearing that wickedness will continue long after he's faded away. And Daniel has reason to hope through all of this because of everything he's learned about God during this exile. All the lessons that he's learned, all the things that he has seen, they've all taught him something about God. And he's learned enough about God to endure. And he's learned enough about God to still have hope, even as the suffering continues. So what has he learned about God? And what have we learned about God from the book of Daniel that we can take during our own times of hardship and challenge and suffering? Well, in the book of Daniel, we see a God who is sovereign. That's the first blank in that second category on your bulletin outline. We see a God who is sovereign. Think about it. Even though kings will arise and kings will attack God's people and kings will force God's people to worship idols and kings will cause great suffering for God's people. Just when they're on the brink of destroying God's people completely, 
just when it seemed like things couldn't possibly get any worse. What's happened in the book of Daniel? Right when they got on the brink, right when they came to the point of no return, of utter annihilation, what's happened to those kings who have tried to stamp out God's people once and for all? Every single time that wicked king has fallen short. Every single time that king has been exposed as a mere mortal. Every time and every one has learned that those wicked kings, those frightening beasts from the sea, aren't quite as powerful as they think they are. Think about the examples. Right when Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was on top of the world, what happened? He was humble. He lost his mind. He lost his kingdom. And it was only returned to him when he looked to heaven and repented of his pride. Another example, right? When Belshazzar thought that he could mock God without any consequences whatsoever, what happened? He was overthrown by a different kingdom. And right when Darius thought that things were going pretty well in his new kingdom after taking out Belshazzar, what happened to him? He was manipulated by his servants. He was played for a fool because they wanted to kill Daniel. Every single time, every single of these kings has learned the hard way. That they are not as powerful as they think they are. These kings may have thought that they were sovereign, but they've learned the hard way that only God is sovereign. He's the one who has the power to set them up, and he's the one who can tear them down anytime he sees fit. Daniel has learned, and you and I have learned, that God is sovereign. The second blank is that we also see a God who is faithful. A God who is faithful. One of the biggest questions early in the book was this. Has God once and for all forsaken his people? Has he finally had enough of their sin? Is God, after all this time, actually going to give up on them? Not just threaten it, but is he actually going to do it? Well, Daniel has learned, and we have learned, that the answer to that question is a resounding no. God has not forsaken his people. God has not given up on his people. He's not going to abandon them now, even after all their sin. God is faithful because at their most desperate moments during this exile in Babylon, when things seem like they are just on the brink of complete destruction, what's happened then? All those times God has come through. When the wise men were facing certain death because of the king's anger, what did God do? He gave Daniel gifts and interpretations. God saved his three friends from the fiery furnace right when they were thrown in at the very last moment. And God closed the mouths of lions. When things seemed like they were utterly falling apart, God time after time after time has come through because he is faithful. Daniel has learned that God is sovereign and Daniel has learned that God is faithful to his people. 
And we've learned the same thing. And that's all well and good. It's comforting to know during times of suffering that God is sovereign and God is faithful to his people. That can give us some level of encouragement. That can give us some level of hope. However, during our suffering, even knowing those things about God, we still often ask the question. It's a question seen in Daniel 12, verses 6, as well as verse 8 through 9. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Verse 8, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. When we face our own times of suffering, our own times of pain, even knowing that God is sovereign, believing that God is faithful, we still ask similar questions. How long until this is over? What will be the outcome of these things? What good is going to come out of this? God, please tell me why this suffering is continuing. Because after all, if God is so powerful that we call him sovereign, and if God loves his people so much that we say he's faithful to them, even after all they've done, why does pain so often continue? Why does the pattern of wickedness that this vision talks about, why does that have to keep happening? Why doesn't Daniel just get to go home? All he wants to do is die in Jerusalem. Is that really so much to ask? Why didn't God just end Daniel's suffering then and there? And we often ask the question, why can't he end our suffering now? No matter what our suffering looks like. The truth is, ultimately, we don't know the answer to that. Sometimes we ask those questions, and it seems like God is looking at us and saying, go your own way. Mind your own business. The times of these things is shut up until the end. I can't tell you when these wonders, if you want to call them that, are going to come to an end. And we don't always know what the outcomes are. But again... We do know some things about God that can bring us comfort, that can bring us hope, even as we wrestle with that question. Things that we've learned about God from the book of Daniel. We've learned that God is sovereign. We've learned that God is faithful. And number three, we've learned that we worship a God who's willing to suffer with his people. A God who is willing to suffer with his people. God heard his people's cry when they were in slavery in Egypt. God's been with Daniel this whole time, all these decades of exile, even when a stone was rolled over a lion's pit and Daniel was left for dead. Daniel says, my God was with me. My God stopped the mouths of the lions. Daniel has learned through his experience and through his suffering that even though his suffering lasts longer than he would prefer, and even though God doesn't always give the answers that we want when we ask those questions of why that suffering is happening in the first place, Daniel has learned that he doesn't suffer alone. 
that God suffers with his people. But we've seen God's willingness to suffer, you and I, even better, to be totally honest, than Daniel saw it. Sure, Daniel saw God stop the mouth of a lion. That's an incredible thing to see. Sure, Daniel saw God save his friends from a fiery furnace. I can't imagine what it would be like to see something like that. The truth is that we've seen something even better. Because we've seen the cross. We've learned by looking at the cross that God is not oblivious to our pain. And that God is not oblivious to our suffering. God knows a thing or two about pain, and God knows a thing or two about suffering, because his son put on flesh, like yours and like mine. His son lived a human life, not sinning a single time. And his son died a human death on the cross. As we look at the cross, we can know even better than Daniel did that God suffers with his people. Peter hits on this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, a book that is, talks quite a bit about the suffering of God's people in the New Testament. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. As we ask that question, how long does this have to continue? Why does the pattern keep happening? What will the outcome of these things be? We don't always get the answer that we want. Sometimes we're told to go our own way. But we do ask the question to a God who knows a thing or two about suffering. We ask the question of a God who sent his son to bear our sins in his body on the tree. We ask the question of a God who sent his son, who by that son's wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, We are healed. God knows a thing or two about suffering. Even though we don't know how long it will last. And even though we don't know how long sometimes we feel like we can take it anymore. And while we ultimately don't know why suffering lasts as long as it often does for God's people. There are other passages in scripture that may give us reasons that aren't always as obvious to us. Maybe there are reasons that our suffering continues longer than we'd like. Maybe there are reasons that the pattern of wickedness that causes God's people to be in pain and hardship, maybe there's a reason that it continues that we can't always see so clearly. Paul talks about his own suffering in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Again, Paul knew a thing about suffering himself. Verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, Paul saw some incredible things, just like Daniel. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Hear that? Paul's asking those questions. How long? 
What will the outcome of these things be? He pleads with God, the suffering, the thorn would depart from him. Verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Just like Daniel, Paul doesn't really get much of an answer for how long his suffering is going to continue. Go your own way, Paul. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul believes that his suffering, given him by God, prevents him from becoming conceited. It forces him to rely on God's grace more than he would otherwise. Paul believes that when his own weakness is placed next to the power of God, it makes the power of God look even more glorious. His suffering teaches him contentment and weakness and imperfection. And his suffering reminds him of Jesus' suffering on his behalf. Sometimes our suffering does the exact same thing. And perhaps Paul's suffering and your suffering and my suffering, whatever it might look like, perhaps that suffering even enables us to fulfill a calling that God has placed upon his people to come alongside others as they go through suffering of their own. In that 1 Peter 2 passage, verse 21, just before what we read, Peter writes, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christ's example of suffering for others on the cross is an example that we're called to emulate, that we suffer alongside others as well. Last month in the city of Cincinnati, where, of course, Olivia and I are from, there was a tragic event that seems to be in the news all the time these days, events that keep on happening, regardless of what your opinion may be on each different scenario. The situation was that an African-American man was pulled over by a University of Cincinnati police officer. The University of Cincinnati police officer shot the man in the head, and ultimately the man died. Now, about 10 days later, body camera footage was released, and the prosecutor in the city of Cincinnati named Joe Dieters thought it was pretty clear, pretty obvious, pretty cut and dry that this was, in fact, a case where an officer lost his composure, where an officer made a mistake, and a man died who didn't deserve to die. As a result, that officer was indicted for the murder of this man named Sam Du Bois. And as you can imagine, in any city where an event like this has occurred, when news like this comes out, there is immense confusion, there's anger, there's sadness, there's heartache, there's all kinds of emotions when something like this occurs. And so on July 29th, when that indictment was announced, it was very interesting to see how different churches reacted to the news in the city of Cincinnati. There were two churches in particular that I thought were really interesting and in how they responded to the event. One church located about a mile down the road from where the shooting occurred. So we're talking ground zero of this tragic event. They opened their doors 
They didn't plan to open their doors, but they did. And they invited people in and they said, you know what? Come to our church building, laugh, cry, talk, pray, vent, whatever it is that you need to do in light of this event. They opened their doors and invited the people of that hurting community to come and suffer with them so that they would not be suffering alone. Another church, again, about a mile away from where the shooting occurred, they were supposed to have an event that night, but instead they canceled the event, closed their doors, and encouraged people to come to one of their other campuses instead if they need to pray or talk or cry or whatever even though half the people who go to that church probably can't even afford the bus fare to get to the other campus. It seemed as though in that one small situation, one church understood what it meant to suffer with those who are suffering, to come alongside them as they are suffering, and yet one church didn't seem to understand it very well after all. You and I worship a God who knows what it's like to suffer. You and I look at the cross and we see a God who sent his son to suffer for us. You and I will go through suffering of various types in our lives, varying intensity. We all have different versions of pain and hardship and suffering. But we are reminded in the book of Daniel And we're reminded by the cross that God knows a thing or two about suffering. May that give us hope and may that give us encouragement as we suffer ourselves and as we come alongside those who are suffering around us. Finally, we worship a God who saves. That's the fourth and final blank. We worship a God who saves. Look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 13, the final verse of the entire book. But go your way till the end, Daniel, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. God looks at Daniel and says, go your own way, but you will be saved. In the meantime, your job is simply to be faithful. Your job is to suffer well. And Daniel, you can do these things because you've learned what kind of God I am. You've learned that I'm sovereign. You've learned that I'm faithful. You've learned that I suffer with my people. And Daniel, I promise you that I am a God who saves. One day you will find rest. One day you will stand in your allotted place, even after all that you've dealt with. Brian Chappell writes this at the book of Daniel. Daniel will remain in captivity. He will age. He will know pain in the present and grief for the future. He will not see Israel's glory restored. His people will not have a great revival under his ministry. Their enemies will not be conquered in his lifetime. His fondest dreams for this life will go unfulfilled. Glory is not yet, but it is sufficient to keep him faithful in the present. Knowing all that we do about the God who we worship, everything we've learned about God in the book of Daniel, I pray the same can be said of us, that we will be faithful in the present. The endurance and the faithfulness and the steadfastness that this will require 
isn't going to come from the sweat of our brows. It's not going to come from the strength of our wills. It's going to come from constantly being reminded of just who this God is that we worship. Constantly looking at that cross and never forgetting what kind of God it is who asks us to be faithful. And knowing that God is sovereign, and knowing that God is faithful, and knowing that God suffers with us, because nothing displays that more clearly than the cross of Christ, and knowing that one day, in the end, even after all this pain, we will find rest, knowing all that stuff, may we suffer well. May we be faithful. May we endure, not by the sweat of our brows, by the strength of our wills, but rather because of our knowledge of who God is, that God has shown us. Let's pray. Father, there's so much that we can take in and so much that we can learn about who you are in the book of Daniel. These are just a few things, just bird's eye views of attributes of who you are and parts of your character. And God, I pray that as we read Scripture, as we read the book of Daniel, as we read other parts of Scripture, we would have an even bigger understanding, even stronger faith in what kind of God you are. God, I pray knowing what kind of God that we worship, that we would be faithful, that we would endure suffering well, that we would come alongside others as they suffer and that we would point them to the cross to show them that they do not suffer alone, to show them that you are not content to let them suffer without reason or without cause or without end even. Because one day those who suffer for your name, they will find rest, they will be saved. And they will stand in the allotted place that you have given them. God, thank you for this book, the challenge and the inspiration and the encouragement that it gives us. And God, I pray that we would leave this place understanding that, in a sense, we too are exiles in a foreign land. That we live in a land that really we're the minority in. And God, I pray that you would Just give us the conviction. Give us the strength. Let us rely on your grace and on your mercy and our knowledge of who you are. That we might faithfully bear witness to who you are and what you've done, no matter what's happening in the world around us. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Again, all of us are facing suffering of some type, pain, hardship, challenges, whatever. It all looks different for each of us. Some of it comes and some of it goes. But either way, we all know a thing or two about suffering. And so I pray that if you've been suffering alone, if you've been attempting to carry that weight upon your back, upon your chest, all by yourself, that you would know that you have a God who suffers with sinners. And if you haven't yet believed that, if you haven't yet believed that God sent his son to die on the cross for sinners like you and sinners like me, and that God suffers with his people, 
and that his son rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, will one day return, and that God's people will reign in eternity away from suffering, away from the beasts of the sea that we read about in the book of Daniel, away from the tears and away from the pain. If you have not believed that stuff yet, I pray that you would make that decision this morning. Several of our elders will be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to talk with you, happy to pray with you, happy to answer your questions. Again, I pray that you would leave this morning knowing that Christ suffered for you. So as we sing this last song, I pray that you'll consider that. We look forward to seeing you next week.